Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Adventures in .NET. Uh, my name is Adam Frumanek, and today it's Christian Wentz with me. And we are going to have a panelist discussion just for the two of us. So uh, welcome again. And Christian brought today an article and a very interesting topic. So Christian, would you give us some understanding what you brought and why you find it very nice to discuss? Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Adam. So as uh, uh, probably many of you know, uh, security or web security is uh, one of my main topics. I uh, once was a guest on that very topic, actually, with regards to ASP.NET Core on this show. Um, and uh, the uh, one of one of the the most uh, well-known, let's say, awareness documents for web application security is the uh, the OWASP top ten. Right? It's it's a list of the ten top security risks for web applications, curated by the Open Web Application Security Project OWASP uh, homepage OWASP.org, uh, which is a, a non-for-profit organization or registers as uh, such. Um, has a, a wealth of information, uh, lots of documentation. How do I prevent attack X with stack Y? Uh, cheat sheets, um, verification standards, also software, uh, st uh, uh, dynamic uh, web application scanner, which can find some security vulnerabilities, web applications that uh, have intentional security vulnerabilities, so they can be used to uh, well, train um, some uh, some pen testing and much more. Um, and yeah, also a couple of top 10 lists, actually. And the best known one is the OVASP top 10. Uh, I think it started in 2003 and the OVASP itself started in 2001. And then uh, at the beginning, they had a new top 10 list every year. But assembling that list and uh, have it kind of predictable and make it data-based uh, was, was quite an effort. So what they actually did was uh, that they then went to a three-year cadence. Uh, they did not make that the last two times. So we know at a four-year cadence and the uh, most recent version of that list is the 2021 OS.10. But before you know you switch to another show, hear me out. Um, that list, I mean, super, super important, right? But there are other top 10 lists as well, and they, they are not as famous, right? Uh, they're a little bit underneath the radar. So, for instance, there's, there's one top 10 related to Docker, for instance, right? All super interesting. And of course, with all of those, those lists, so maybe may, let me, let me put that first. With, with all of those lists, they are awareness lists, right? If there are 10 items on the list, and you have a limited amount of time, you can't just say, okay, I, I do one through seven, right? Because they are just much more important. Based on the data and of course, on the bias of those delivering the data and maybe also the bias of those compiling the list. Uh, yeah, to them, uh, one through seven might be the most important ones, but uh, for you or for your applications or for your stack or for the way you are doing uh, web software, it might be entirely different, right? So it's an awareness document. It's not a list of top 10 attacks. It's a list of risks. And some of them come directly from attacks. Some of them are more conceptual. For instance, in that current OVS top 10, one item uh, is uh, insecure design, right? Which, I mean, yeah, it, it's a risk. I get that. It's not so actionable as some of the, the others, which are more tied to specific attacks. But anyway, right? So it's an awareness document. So take everything with a grain of salt. And as that I mentioned, that really, really cool. One question I'd yeah. like to ask uh, here initially, like you mentioned, all those lists and the tooling, and they are very old. But the one thing uh, which I always uh, find interesting is how can I actually apply that list yeah. directly in the code? Are there any ways? It's it's not like a how to fix your application list because I mean the the problem uh, maybe maybe if you take a ten thousand feet view, right? That the problem of security is you don't see an absence of it, right? It's like like brushing your teeth, right? So uh, so while we're recording this, we are seeing each other, but we're not in the same room, right? And I mean, I have no idea whether you are brushing your teeth today, right? And vice versa. I have a hunch, but you know. <laughs> um, so we, we just don't see it. But, you know, um, 
the 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 absence of security or the absence of brushing your teeth is not obvious unless it's too late, right? So I I leave it up to your imagination what happens if you don't brush your teeth for a year. But if you know there is no security and in a web application, one way to find that out is if someone hacks. And so that's a little bit of the problem. So, and that's why awareness is key, right? You have to protect against things that are not there yet, right? And maybe even against kinds of attacks that, that have not really been invented yet. So you always have to have a very defensive approach uh, to the way you build your, your software. And that awareness list kind of makes you aware of, of risks that can happen. Now, with that given... Um, still, for, for each entry in the, say, OVS Totin, for instance, there are uh, more or less uh, precise examples of typical occurrences of that risk or, or typical aspects. How could this risk kind of materialize in your applications? And of course, then you might have countermeasures against it, right? So yeah, that is the case, at least for, for some of the aspects. But uh, usually, I mean, no, I have to rephrase that. What I often find is that security is uh, is reactive, right? So you do something because someone found something. But it would be much better, of course, uh, if uh, you are in the, the, the driver's seat, right? And you start putting security in your applications, right? From, so from that, sounds very, very like start, a, right? that sounds like an ever-never-ending story, right? Of course. It's not that you check it out once when starting your yeah. project. You need to refresh that periodically because the world changes, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there, gotcha. there, there are companies with, with, I, I visit like like uh, every year, every two years, right? And then they still want awareness, 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 awareness. People, you know, leave, new people come in. And I mean, not everyone is kind of responsible as in having, you know, the title of being whatever security engineer. But every engineer has to know enough about security to write solid and secure code and that maybe supported cool. by, by, uh, by a uh, security engineer. That sounds cool. So before actually diving into the list you brought yeah. for us today, um, yeah. like one practical question, I imagine. Obviously, we know there is like secure software supply chain. There is cybersecurity, obviously InfoSec in big corps and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But what is like the practical approach for, for like, let's say, software engineers that really do the coding, yeah. still they would like to keep their applications safe and secure. How can they tackle this problem on some like regular cadence so their applications do not rot, do not go insecure because of whatever? I think there are, there are several ingredients, right? And depending on the size of, uh, of the company or of the team, then, you know, more can be done or less can be done. Uh, so one aspect, of course, is just training, awareness, right? I mean, the, the risks for web applications, they are, they are all the same, no matter what kind of stack you're using. Although, for instance, uh, since we're here at Adventures in .NET, ASP.NET Core has some pretty solid protections against some attacks. Still, there's not, no excuse for not knowing about them, right? So you, you have to have that, that awareness. But still, the stack protects you, but the risks are the same. The countermeasures are specific. So being aware of the risks, knowing about specific technology-specific uh, countermeasures is, of course, uh, important. If you have someone responsible for security, like a security engineer that, I don't know, takes part in code reviews, takes part in design reviews, um, is, is always helpful. And, of course, uh, also testing your applications, either uh, internally or externally um, on a regular basis. This, this all can help. And, I mean, if you're a small team then uh, and uh, have a software that is... Uh, that, that doesn't generate millions, millions of dollars, right? Then um, maybe you uh, are less inclined to pay for a pen test. Um, and uh, if you do, then maybe you are. So, but again, it, it really depends on the scenario. But I think these are kind of ingredients. Awareness, training, uh, knowing uh, how to write secure code and having someone on the team who wears the security hat and makes sure that security is, is part of the process, right? And not an, an afterthought. Right, like a patch you put on a, on a flash wound or something. That sounds really good, and I like it. Okay, so I imagine well, you brought a list with you for in, today's episode. Indeed, indeed. So, as I mentioned, there are other uh, top 10 lists, and there has been one um, that uh, was, uh, was uh, released in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. But in uh, May 2023, so uh, not that long ago, they released 
a new version, the 2023 version. And it's the OVASP API security top 10. So it's not the OVASP top 10, which is general for web applications. It's the API security top 10. There is the OVASP API security project. And that project tries to curate a top 10 list specifically for APIs. And I mean, more and more applications these days, right? They, they have this typical pattern, the single page application, where basically you have static assets uh, in, in the browser and then uh, the, the, the functionality and the data, et cetera, uh, that all goes uh, through an API. And I mean, an API is like a web application, right? So usually you talk to it via HTTP, something similar. Um, if uh, you can uh, uh, open the API results directly in a browser, you might be careful with regards to JavaScript being injected, just to give one example, right? Although that's rare. Um, and then, of course, on the server, you may have a database, so you have to look out for stuff there. So it's, it's similar to web applications, but still it's different because some type of attacks or risks are more common in APIs than regular web applications and vice versa. For instance, uh, the, the JavaScript injection or a more precise uh, cross-site scripting. Cross-site scripting is typical for web applications, right? It's rather rare for APIs because usually with APIs, what you do is you get data, you process data, and then when you return data in, in most technology stacks, you basically say, okay, this is, this is the object, this is the data, this is the array, this is the whatever that I'd like the, the API to return. Here, technology stack or here, framework of choice. Please put, the, put that into JSON. I, I don't really care. And then that framework returns properly formatted JSON with the correct uh, content type so that the browser does not render that as HTML and therefore no JavaScript is part of that. So process scripting is rare. That doesn't mean it cannot happen, but it is rare, right? And so th that's, that's why those, those lists are different. And I mean, more and more applications, at least uh, the ones I'm seeing, and maybe it's similar for you, um, uh, they, they are using APIs a lot. And even if you don't have a single page application still, uh, lots, of, lots of software is just, is just using, uh, using APIs. Um, yeah, I think API, generally the concept is nothing, like to this essence, is not related to web security, web APIs or web applications in general, right? APIs are with us for many decades and generally, even though today we think about the web world, it's not always the case. And cross-site scripting, as you mentioned, that's like JavaScript injection is basically about browsers, right? But when you are doing like, I don't know, backend and some uh, embedded software or whatever, then you also use APIs and, for instance, scripts like Lua scripts and other stuff. I imagine cross-site scripting, maybe not the definitional cross-site scripting as we have with web browser, uh, could also happen in those scenarios. What do you think? It could, but it's uh, it's very very rare because of the built-in stack protection and uh, well, uh, just to give you a spoiler, so there is no cross-site scripting entry in the uh, API gotcha. content. And I agree here. Let me put it that way. Why? Uh, or maybe if I say, okay, do I agree with that list? I mean, how how kind of biased is that? Because the the latest OVASP top ten minus API. Uh, was very, very data-driven. So uh, practitioners, people who, or companies who uh, do pen tests, et cetera, they kind of provided their results of, of their pen tests. So what was found, how often, and then this was kind of, you know, categorized and, you know, put, put into buckets so that we get a couple of categories. Um, and again, it was very data-driven. I mean, there were some bait factors uh, which, which were added. So the exploitability, for instance, and, and other stuff. Um, so that could add some bias or the grouping is some bias, if you would like to call it that way. But I mean, still, they try to make it as data-driven as, uh, as possible. Um, the uh, API project tried the same. So they started with uh, different databases, uh, like uh, public reports about security issues in APIs. Uh, I think they were using some bug bounty platforms and then some, some public uh, CVEs. Um, and then they also did a data call. So please give us data, but they didn't get enough, right? So basically discarded the data and uh, were sticking with what they got. And then again, categorized the talk to people, massaged uh, the, the data. So, and I mean, you know, massaging data always sounds like cheating, but I mean, it still has to be kind of coherent and kind of makes sense. And maybe it should also 
match with expectations from practitioners in the field. So I, I mean, that's good enough for me because it's an awareness list, right? Because I say, I don't care if something is number three or number four, if it's there, I have to, I have to be aware of that, right? That sounds really cool. Yeah. Okay, so we know how it all started. We kind of know how it goes. So how about we go and see the list, what it brings for us this year? Absolutely. So let's let's go through the list uh, or through all 10 items. Uh, and I think many of them we can cover briefly, uh, but some of them maybe we can uh, discuss in more depth. Um, so let's uh, just have a holistic look at it. And um, may, I, may I once again... Uh, quickly peek at the uh, the big, so to speak, OS top 10, because they are the, the current number one entry in the current 2021 edition. Uh, it's called Broken Access Control, um, which, you know, I, we understand it, right? It's a risk, yada, yada. Um, and in previous li- uh, versions of the OS top 10, that was split up into, okay, access to what was broken, right? Because it makes a difference if you access data or if you access functionality or if you access something else and don't have proper, say, uh, authentication or authorization there, right? Um, the OS top 10 can do that, so they could put everything into this one broken access control bucket because there were enough other back buckets to fill. For APIs, maybe not so much, and that's why they split this up. And therefore, the number one entry in the uh, 2023 um, API security top 10 is broken object level authorization. That's um, magical. Can you clarify a little bit? What's that about? Uh, so, well, we uh, try to access an object. So often that's data. And we have broken um, authorization. So the authorization uh, there uh, does does not work. I mean, there are simple examples, right? So that uh, there is a, a data.json file publicly available on a server, right? Um, which is directly accessible. And I mean, that sounds dumb, right? Um, maybe it is dumb, to be honest. Um, but but it kind of it kind of categorizes that that risk really, really well. So we can get access to objects, essentially to data, without proper um, authorization. I mean, we are one of those those typical examples from from web applications, right? So uh, you log into an application, and then you have an, a URL like uh, well, now it's an API. So uh, we would have an API endpoint like whatever, slash, um, I don't know, uh, uh, invoices, uh, slash, one, two, three, right? And Mm -hmm. since you're authenticated, why not use one, two, four, right? If you get data as well, and that's not your invoice, that's basically in in uh, in that uh, that bucket, right? And so, so I imagine everything that may fall into these categories, for yeah. instance, any mechanism that lets me iterate over objects by guessing their identifiers, that which I shouldn't be able to access, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And any like practical considerations for that? Like, should I mm-hmm. I don't know randomize identifiers, use global <sighs> UIDs or whatever, or I, just change the you know mechanism to not let anyone read those files i think um i mean i'm i'm a fan of having guids uh, as identifiers indeed but i know you know how practical and easy uh, and digestible it is if we have uh, integers uh what a lot of people are doing i mean it's not a problem oh well it's not necessarily a problem if someone guesses an invoice as long as you do authorization, does this user have the privileges to access that specific uh, invoice? Right. So that's uh, I think that's uh, that's the uh, that's the idea. Right. Yeah. One thing um, I would add to this: I am not an expert in OWASP, so I don't know whether it actually falls into this category. But like pre-signed URLs, yeah. um, that is something that like we programmers we know that we are lazy, and when we generate a pre-signed URL, how long should when should mm-hmm. it expire? Ideally, yeah, yeah. never because it's convenient, right? Yeah. yeah but that's yeah, yeah. a very easy way to actually break this mechanism, right? Okay. You get an object, you pre-sign URL, and bang, you publicize it anywhere and one of the issues the practical issue and this is something i actually faced in like my career Mm -hmm. um was maybe a little bit different but still on the same idea like single sign on url yeah um when you confirm user account or Mm -hmm. or whatever Mm -hmm. when you send those links over email to your users 
our beloved email clients, they tend to basically take the thumbnail of the URL, take the snapshot and bank, kill our URLs this way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, also one of those, those typical rules is, right, if you have an HTTP method get, it should not change the state of the application, right? Um, yeah, but yeah, exactly. in that case, it does. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's really bad, right? Also, uh, especially some web-based mail providers, they try to check the links in emails to find out whether they are malicious or whether they point to something that is considered dangerous. So they're also trying to load that URL, right? Cool, cool. Okay, one more power. Shall we move on? Yeah, indeed. Uh, number two, super generic broken authentication. And I mean, broken authentication can be anything, right? So you have an API that has guest slash guest as credentials, or you have an API that is uses uh, that is using JSON web tokens, uh, but uh, accepts uh, JWTs that are not signed, right? Or uh, uh, you have an application where the JWT doesn't have an expiration date, or the expiration date is not checked, stuff stuff like that, right? And I mean. That's number two. Um, I was a bit surprised to, uh, to see that uh, because quite often, especially when you have an API, you don't really manually do the authentication, right? You you use what your framework is uh, uh, providing you with. So for instance, with, with ASP.NET Core, you really have to explicit disable uh, the, uh, the signing requirement, for instance, for JWTs. But um, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, actually that it, that specific thing doesn't even have an effect. So you have to have signed JWTs anyway, right? So uh, you yeah. can kind of override the mechanism that validates this, but you can't just say. Well, you could say, but it, it kind of doesn't work. It doesn't change the behavior. Eh? You can't say, yeah, don't check the signature. No, that signature will be checked. I think there are two, if I was a programmer um, and thinking about this rule, I think there would be two places where I could get it wrong. First one is obviously for my local or dev environment, I'm going to cut corners like crazy, disable that stuff, and then I just forget to re-enable it in production for whatever reason. Um, But second thingy, and this is again something I I, uh, like um, encountered uh, in -hmm. the companies, is broke breaking this mechanism by using seemingly secure things incorrectly for instance having like a physical yubikey to you know um, take make the authentication work well with multi-factor but not using this hashing option of Mm -hmm. yubikey but Mm -hmm. instead generating one-time key and because yubi doesn't have the clock in it yeah. Then if I, you know, regenerate it accidentally, it still it never expires. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is cool, can also be considered a feature for some UWS yes, cases. It, it is a feature indeed. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good. Cool. Let's pivot to number three: broken object property level authorization. Uh, that sounds a bit complicated. And I mean, what's the difference between broken object level authorization and broken object property level authorization? I think a typical example would be um, what is uh, uh, maybe related to mass assignment or overposting for regular quote unquote uh, web applications. So imagine you have an endpoint, whatever, API endpoint create user, right? And you can send the user with a username and an email address and maybe maybe the password, right? But the model on the server. Um, also has other properties for the users. For instance, the property, and I mean, I make this, you know, as uh, as, as boilerplate as possible, right? Uh, so you wouldn't do this in practice, right? But just just to get the idea across. So let's just imagine the user had a Boolean property. You know what's where I'm going at, right? Uh, a Boolean property is admin, right? Mm-hmm. So what if that create user request gets not only username and uh, credentials and email address and whatever? but also is admin colon true. Because especially if you do something like model binding, which of course is very popular with ASP.NET Core and thus ASP.NET Core Web API as well, then if is admin is a public property of that model, it would be bound as well. And that would mean we would have broken object property level authorization. Right? 
And this is actually a very common case. At it least is. I've seen that in 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 experience, like in practice, many times. Especially when we reuse the same model for like database storage yeah. and view models on the API side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you and then we use AutoMapper yeah. or whatever, which yeah. does the magic with bindings. Yeah. And there exactly. We go. Exactly. Yeah. So use a view model. Or I mean, uh, if if you don't, uh, if you just use what what ASP.NET Core gives you, um, you have the uh, include and uh, exclude attributes, so you can have an allow list or a deny list uh, for for properties which uh, which may be bound and which may not be bound. Right? Yeah, um, and this is especially especially tricky because one of the other uh, so-called quote-unquote best practice mm. is whenever you have an API and you do mm. not recognize some properties, just let them pass through for compatibility yeah. right backwards and forwards and this way you can break this um what it was called broken object property yeah. level authorization yeah. right exactly exactly all right cool, cool. number four um and that's something i mean that could happen or is a risk for web application as well but for apis i think it's more relevant it's unrestricted resource consumption right so uh that the, the API is subject to a denial of service attack. Or what I see more and more often is lots of applications these days, they're using GraphQL. But I mean, GraphQL is kind of complex. And with complexity, of course, always comes the risk that there, there is some abuse possible. And uh, one thing I recently found in audit, for instance, was there was a GraphQL query where um, some some really complex database uh, logic was triggered by a GraphQL call, and the application therefore set uh, was using paging for the results and was setting a page size as part of the GraphQL query. So uh, we could find out that uh, you could uh, uh, change the query and use a very very large page size, and that would uh, basically uh, send a uh, issue a denial of service attack against the against the application, right? So. You have to have some kind of rate limiting. You have to have some monitoring or, and again, that depends on the app, maybe some, some auto-scaling where it's hosted or just some threshold. Okay, this, this, much, this much traffic, this much uh, resource uh, allocation, uh, this uh, uh, size of the incoming HTTP request, payload, etc. This, this is the limit and uh, deny everything else. Two things come to my mind when when you mentioned this. Uh, first is actually what happened with Twitter, at, at least what they claim <laughs> happened, that they like were abused heavily yeah. uh, for text messages, right? So yeah. uh, so so everyone was just using Twitter just to 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 make them send second factor yeah. and pay for it, and then yeah, then yeah. wasting it, right? And second thing that comes to my mind is any kind of reflection attacks. I think like uh, some services, for instance, DNS um, or Active Directory, they let you basically, when they can't handle some request, they route it to some other server, right? And if you control that, then basically you can incur additional charges or even DDoS, you know, some yeah. other services this way. Absolutely. All right. Ready for yet another broken authorization? Let's thing. go for it's it. It's the last one. It's number five on the list. It's broken. I mean, we have had objects we have had object properties so now we're missing the functionality aspect so broken function level authorization so okay. basically we don't access data we access a functionality and with with apis i mean if it's a get request it's usually data if it's something like post often it's the functionality that we are calling so basically it's the same thing but this time uh the, uh, we are accessing some functionality or a function, as, as they call it in uh, in that list, right? So and, basically, it's calling an endpoint, yeah. then I should be able to call, yeah. right? I mean, the, uh, web applications have these two generic rules: uh, um, uh, validate input and escape output, right? Of course, you cannot validate each and every input. Uh, think of free text fields, right? But then, if if you process the data, then you have to escape it before you stuff it into SQL or put it in HTML, right, to avoid SQL injection or, or cross-site scripting. And uh, for, for many API calls, I mean, still, validate validate the, the incoming request, 
whether you get the data you expect or too much or uh, too little or uh, the right properties, but they have too much data in them. Whatever you can validate, um, just do. Just do. Yeah, that sounds like a very good rule of thumb. It's Let's a, carry on then. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Let's quickly move over to number six: uh, unrestricted access to sensitive business flows. And um, now this gets serious because we mentioned business funds. Yes. Right. So finally, finally, um, it's getting expensive. Exactly. Um, and uh, I mean, indeed, uh, with with every API endpoint we are calling in a business application. It somehow that somehow pays into the the process uh, that uh, that uh, is uh, is happening, right? Um, and uh, those, um, let's say those those endpoints or those API parts that are that are close to the revenue of a company, they should be vetted uh, extra hard, right? So I think an example the the OVASP is uh, is giving is uh, if you um, automate uh, referral systems of, of a company, right? So that uh, you get a referral bonus if you refer someone else and if you kind of automate this um, and uh, therefore make make sure you always get a referral bonus when, um, when providing whatever a new customer um, or uh, uh, I think, are they, are they using ride sharing as an example? I, I, I don't remember ex- uh, actually, but I think it's ride sharing, right? So whenever you bring in a customer for a ride that you can, could, Hypothetically, automated process of uh, setting up for referral and then um, then getting the referral bonus, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, and I mean, the differences between those items we've had so far, they are relatively subtle, right? Uh, but um, as you as you rightfully pointed out, if if I just say validate the data as good as you can, that is factually correct, right? And it's probably solid advice, but it's not not tangible. But think exactly. about okay, think about the data you can access. Think about any properties a request could set. Think about the functionality that can be called. Think about which of the APIs trigger which business processes. I think this awareness, and there we are again, awareness. Uh, this awareness, I think, is key. Mm-hmm. Especially that when I read the description of, of this rule, right, yeah. which is if used excessively in an automated manner, then yeah. it harms the business. Yeah. And one thing that came to my mind is, what if like, we make a human mistake yeah. and when we post an item for selling mm-hmm. uh, on the page, we like miss number of zeros, right? And we start yeah. selling something 10 times cheaper than we should. Um, uh, and when someone makes an order for like not buying one uh, piece of the item, but 1,000 pieces of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. should we allow for that or not? How should we cover that? And how would we even notice that this happened, right? Do we yeah, have yeah. monitoring for basically? Exactly. The OS top 10 uh, uh, number nine item, by the way, is... Uh, insufficient uh, logging and monitoring. We'll get to that first. Let's move on. Uh, to no, we numbers. won't because that was the uh, the OS top ten. The API top ten does not have um, that is exactly that, right. That item, right? So, but again, so you see the the focus is a bit different. Um, but I think uh, all of this is, of course, of equal uh, equal importance. I'm a bit good. torn, I have to be honest, I am a bit torn about uh, number seven. It's server-side request forgery. Server-side request forgery, that's not cross-side request forgery, that's something else. Uh, that's uh, cross-side request forgery basically abuses the way cookies work, at least in the, the most typical uh, aspect of cross-side request forgery. But API authentication is usually not, or often not done via cookies, but rather by a, by a token. Um, and uh, so server-side request forgery is it's a thing it is number 10 in the web OVASP top 10 uh, but it did not come in based on data it came in based on a survey which basically said okay dear practitioners an audit is always a look into the past are there any things you think they might grow in importance in the future if so we could add this to the OVASP top 10 as well and well, essentially, server-side request for G then got the number 10 spot, but wouldn't have gotten that based on the data alone. Um, and here's on number seven, because maybe it's a bit more typical for APIs. 
we just talked about this effect that you have a URL and then your, your email client is calling that URL to display the picture or to, to check it, right? So um, you can trigger your email client potentially. Well, let's not use the email client. You, you, let's use web-based uh, web email uh, application. You can trigger the... Um, the, the server that runs the email application to do an HTTP request, essentially, right? To, to check the link, whether the, the target of the link is, is, uh, is malicious or contains, I don't know, uh, a virus. Um, so, and server-side request forgery is basically that attack. So we, as the attacker, prompt a system, a server, to send an HTTP request to a third party. Now, is that a problem? I mean... Does it make sense? Doesn't it make sense that, uh, for instance, we check specific links in an email before displaying that email to the user? In theory, yes. Yes, but let me let me give you a totally hypothetical example. Let's just imagine we are using uh, let, let's let's say whatever uh, Outlook.com, right? Um, and I'm sure there are safeguards in place, right? Let, but let's just imagine. Okay, so Outlook.com is checking all links in emails before displaying it in the web browser, right? And so let's just imagine there there is this super secret Azure God mode uh, admin page, and uh, the the URL is godmode.azure.com. Well, I hope that doesn't exist. Anyway, um, but that's not publicly accessible, right? Because that's you know within the DMC, you can't access it. But Outlook.com also runs on Azure, and Outlook.com happens to be in the same DMC. And therefore, can access that God mode site, right? So we kind of make Outlook.com on the server send a request to that internal uh, internal system, right? And you see, I mean, it, it took me like a minute to describe, at least a minute to describe this attack, right? The stars have to be aligned perfectly, right? I mean, finding a web application that I can trigger or prompt to send an HTTP request to a third-party site. I mean, that, that works, right? I mean, there are, there are websites where you can enter URL and it checks the URL for, I don't know, for accessibility posture or something. So that works. But the secret, of course, is finding a system that I cannot directly access, right? But that service can access and then finding an HTTP request that actually does some harm, right? So it could be a request that does something to the target server, but usually the requests I can trigger are get requests, and get requests shouldn't change the state of the application, according to the REST principle. Or I can query data from the server that data is then returned to the server I'm attacking, and for some reason the server I've attacked is now returning the data to me in the browser as well, right? Stars have to be aligned um, Perfectly, there are really, really nice proofs of concepts uh, for server-side request forgery. Uh, but at least in in my personal, uh, but of course, uh, anecdotal experience uh, in the audits I'm doing, I do find um, web applications that I can make send an HTTP request to a target of my choosing, so I can show there's hypothetically server-side request forgery. But usually, I cannot give them an exploit that not only shows the vulnerability but also the negative consequences right so but it's only on number this, seven right so um i yeah. take this i accept this, this sounds like a, a very good principle which is very hard to use if we do not uh, make mistakes in other areas yes as you mentioned like it's not only about sending this request but also doing something that like we are after Right, not just breaking something. Obviously, that's a bug on its own. But we, as attackers, probably would like to benefit from that. So that makes it it even harder. Yes, absolutely. All right, we are approaching uh, well, almost the end. Uh, number eight is something that is also part of the OS Plot Ten, but I think that's on number five, if I'm not mistaken. Security misconfiguration. So anything related to security, uh, to, to configuration uh, that is security related. So you don't, you don't enforce HTTPS. You don't use, uh, if the API is consumed by, by, uh, by a web browser client, you don't use uh, security HTTP headers uh, for, uh, for your uh, API. Um, you your course policy is 
accept control allow origin star uh, which kind of would allow everything uh, so so kind of kind of these things everything that is part of configuration now i have to be honest um i i i would not uh, consider myself like an administrator so like running service is not my main area of expertise so i always say okay someone else do uh, has to do that but now with devops or DevSecOps or sec devops i mean i have to do that also i mean those security related headers should the team running the service set them no of course not because they have an effect to the to the application right so i as the person doing the application i should specifically set those headers I mean, there are some configurations like uh, don't send full stack traces to the client uh, in case an exception occurs. Maybe this can be done on the server level. But yeah, um, ma many of those uh, configuration aspects, they are uh, also uh, cookie flags, for instance. They are, they are my um, responsibility and therefore security misconfiguration. Uh, a bit surprised that it comes so late, uh, but uh, indeed. It is there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially that we as developers, we very often turn them off in local environments, right? Yeah. As you mentioned, yeah. like uh, I, of course, uh, put it star just because I don't want to, you know, yeah. waste my time. Confused. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know thing... how course is working, right? Let's let's just yeah, uh, get exactly. this out of the way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing even uh, of us mentions for this rule is the problem with Java and JNDI. And yeah. uh, that was the thing that, well, for .NET developers, that may be a little bit surprising, but yeah. Java's uh, log libraries they really allowed for crazy yeah. stuff and there was this attack for using jndi which basically allowed us that if we log something and how many times we just log the input that we get to yeah, our yeah, apis yeah. then because of fancy pattern replacement that was basically doing a network call yeah. uh, to some remote server so our logging library could be doing very crazy stuff uh, and this is also included. Yeah, so that was the famous lock for net uh, viability, right? Uh, I don't know whether it was in lock for net. It was definitely in yeah. in Java's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and that was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so that. probably lock for net could yeah. be, you know, yeah. uh, exploitable in very similar manner. Right. So generally, it's not only what we can do, but also yeah. what our dependencies do, right? Exactly. How many times we just yeah. take the logging library, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Cool. All right, number nine is improper inventory management. Typically, example, you have your API, but you also have a publicly available QA version of your API. And maybe that is running a different version or doesn't have the same level of uh, protection. A story I'm always uh, love to tell, and I can only tell because uh, I think it's now almost 25 years ago. So I was working for a company that... Uh, did web applications for uh, uh, rather well-known uh, companies. Um, and uh, let's just say for, for ABC Corp, uh, they, they did their, their main web application as well. And uh, I mean, ABC Corp was like Fortune, Fortune 500 company. Um, and so they had a publicly available test server because back then, you know, VPN and stuff like that was uh, too complicated. I don't know. So, and that was ABC dot test dot name of the company I was working for dot com. But of course, you can't just publicly access that. Uh, so there was uh, HTTP basic auth and the username was ABC and the password was CBA. Now imagine Sounds what happened secure. if the, well, I mean, you know, no one knew this, right? But the company didn't just have ABC Corp as a, as a customer, but also BEF Enterprises. Now, guess what the name of the test server was uh, of DF for DF Enterprises and what the credentials were, right? And with improper inventory management, really, okay, which which kind of versions of the APIs do you have? Just knowing which what is out there, not that there's this this old maybe insecure version that has been deployed once to a server someone forgot, right? Um, so just uh, know. Uh, what what your inventory is. Right? So that's it. Sounds sounds simple, right? But uh, um, especially when you know things are complex and you have different versions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, then this is something um, that uh, that always should be taken into taken into account. I 
think one challenge here also, which is, let's say, a little bit uh, more practical, is that when we run multi-tenant yeah. application, right, then it may be that we need to, for some tenants, we need to keep those older APIs. And if yes. anyone finds vulnerability that is like even fixed in the newer version and we put that in changelog or whatever, yes. someone may look for older versions still running. Ah, and now that you mentioned that, uh, completely unrelated, but uh, the the vulnerable framework, uh, I just remembered, it was not Log4Net, so apologies for the team there. It was Log4J. I'm pretty sure it was Log4J yep. um, that had the uh, the vulnerability. Okay, sorry for that. Yep. But now it has been fixed, right? But it was quite an outcry. All right. And we believe no one runs the old version yeah, anymore. Yeah, let's, let's hope for that. <laughs> All right. And actually, that brings uh, that's uh, actually segueing over fantastically to the final entry of the um, OVASP sec uh, API security top 10. Number 10 is unsafe consumption of APIs. Um, because, I mean, I've all, all we've been talking about for many of the preceding items on the API top 10 is that, you know, don't trust user input, validate what you can, etc. But what if you are consuming other APIs as well? It's like having a dependency in your web application, having other APIs. Of course, the data, the information you get from other APIs, it's also something that should be validated and cannot automatically be trusted, right? Because that API might, might be overtaken by someone else. You don't control it, right? So you must not trust it. So don't just distrust, if that's a word, <laughs> your, your users. Uh, also, do not trust uh, any other APIs you're calling, even yeah, if you yeah. call them internally. Right? And I think one thing uh, worth mentioning here is that relying on RFCs or standards yeah. may also be super misleading, right? Because Absolutely. even if we follow RFCs, that does not necessarily mean others do the same. And so we may get like invalid input um, because of whatever in input that we do not expect. And there we come to the rule of thumb you already mentioned. Validate all. Absolutely. <laughs> so that cool. were the 10 items of the uh, OVS API Security of 10, uh, again, uh, from May 2023. And I'm all for awareness, uh, so I can just uh, recommend everyone check that out if you're working on APIs. And yeah, I just have to have to hammer that point home once, once more. Awareness is the key, right? You can't protect your web applications against something you don't know about. That sounds cool. So thank you, Christian, for this uh, this amazing piece of knowledge about Avasp. And Pink, that's, uh, let's actually move on to some picks for absolutely for episode. So I can begin. Yes, sure. Uh, to give you a little break. Uh, so my pick for, for this week is Servio. Uh, Servio.net is one example of various applications that do something that Christian may call insecure, ah, yeah, yeah. which is exposing local, mm -hmm. uh, local applications publicly. I mean, how many times we had this case that, hey, I do run something which is exposed on localhost, colon, whatever. And I just need to access it from somewhere else. For instance, from my mobile phone, for whatever reason, because I'm doing mobile development, right? Yeah. How do I do that easily? And uh, obviously, I could take any VPS, expose SSH, and then do remote forwarding. But if we really need to, really need to do that for like a minute or very quick and dirty, then the application is doing that for us. So Servio is one of them. It works really nice. It's pretty simple to use. Just keep in mind, it may be a little bit dangerous. So when you go back home from your office, always tear the tunnel down. Absolutely. That that makes absolute what, sense. What's your pick, Rich? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm doing uh, a streaming pick uh, uh, just uh, as an homage uh, to uh, our co-hosts that are not there yet. Uh, <laughs> and I, I have to admit, I'm late to the party, but uh, that's maybe also because um, I'm more of a, a binging type. Uh, so for select uh, select shows, um, you know, if it says, okay, every Friday, new episode, right? That's, you know, that's kind of nice. So, okay, ah, I, I got a date on Friday, right? Um, but sometimes it's like, oh, they always have cliffhangers in each and every episode. No, I'll just, you know, binge a couple of them and, you know, decide when I stop. Um, 
And uh, so uh, I may be late to the party here, but my pick is maybe somewhat surprising. It's Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, when I was growing up, I, 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 I didn't really watch the original series, but I was watching uh, Star Trek Next Generation. And I really loved that, right? That, you know, every episode was more or less separate from the others. Yes, there were story arcs, but I really liked that chemistry of the, of the cast, etc. And I found, you know, uh, I, I had some issues with Star Trek Discovery, also some parts of uh, Star Trek Picard, except for the, the third season, because they brought the next generation cast, right? So uh, that was kind of like my youth again. Um, yeah, and with Discovery, I, 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 I had issues with some of the characters, right? And, and so when I saw uh, Star Trek Stranger Worlds, I'm like, oh, it's, it's the same thing again. Yeah, let, let's watch something else. And then a friend, she kind of said, no, you, you, have, you have to watch that, actually. It's, it's now in the second season. I think it runs on Paramount Plus in, in most uh, markets. So I started with season one because, you know, all the 10 episodes are already there. So I was watching this like in three nights or four uh, or evenings. Um, and it's like starting next generation. Fantastic cast working together so well. They do have story arcs, but still each episode is, is different. There are some shocking moments though, but you know, great, great villains, great characters, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. The only issue is now that I've uh, watched uh, season one, of course, I, I, I will watch season two, but season two is still, you know, going on. I, I don't know. Is it like like the fourth episode now as we're recording something like that? So I have to wait for oh, probably two more months until uh, the series uh, or the, the, the season has been completed. And then I just take off for three days and then I catch up. That's always the risk of starting something that hasn't been completed yet. Uh, my case for that is like Patrick Rothfuss, uh, King Killer, <laughs> fantastic series, which was supposed to be a trilogy, and we are waiting for the third part for, <laughs> I don't know, 15 years now. Hopefully one day. Fingers crossed. So Fingers I know crossed. your feeling. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. All right. That's been a great episode. Uh, thanks so much, Adam. Um, uh, thanks, Thank everyone you, listening in. And, and um, uh, I think we'll yeah. be, we have a lighter schedule, I think, during, uh, during the summer. Uh, but we'll be back, back on track uh, 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 at least after summer. But still, we'll drop some episodes uh, in between. And yeah, with that... Um, Thanks Thank you, me. everyone, and let's tune in for the next episode of Adventures in .net. Thanks a lot. Bye, everyone.